0: Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, we are back addressing another topic in the treatment of stroke and specifically what to do with intracranial hemorrhage that occurs after you provide TPA. Our guest is Dr. Joshua Goldstein, who has been on this program before. He is a professor of emergency medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He is also the director for the Center of Neurologic Emergencies in the MGH Department of Emergency Medicine. Now, he's going to tear through some information today on what data exists around TPA, how often intracranial hemorrhage happens after it, and how to know whether it's because of the TPA, should you treat it, is there something to reverse, and the treatment agents. There's a ton of stuff packed into here. You're probably going to need to listen to it more than once. With that said, Dr. Goldstein, please take it away.
1: So I'll begin with my disclosures. I have received research funding from Pfizer, Portola, and Octopharma, consulting from CSL Bering, Octopharma, Philips, Portola, and N-Control. So I'll start with talking about alteplase, or TPA. Uh, then I'll talk about TPA-associated ICH, or intracerebral hemorrhage, and really to highlight that it's not all the same. I think people have this vision that when they think of TPA-associated ICH, they don't all look like this. Uh, next question is, is going to be, is there something to reverse? In other words, uh, when you give TPA, is there anything to reverse after that? And then the next, of course, is options. Like, if there is, What what are we doing, and are we reversing, or are we treating, or what are we doing, and what are our options? And last, I'll talk about just supportive care for this disease when it happens. Let's start with TPA. So TPA stands for tissue plasminogen activator. Now, this is something that we all have in our bodies. Uh, When you give this drug, you're giving a recombinant form of it. So you're giving an extra biologic product that people have. And what this agent does in normal function is it catalyzes the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. So when you have tissue injury and uh, your body forms a clot, it's fibrin is a big piece of this clot, but uh, the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin is what helps degrade that clot at the tail end. So whenever there's clot formation, you're both forming clot and dissolving at the same time. When you form clots, you're Slowing down the degradation process and increasing the formation process, but at the tail end, when you don't need a clot, your body does the opposite to help dissolve it. With TPA, its job is to help your body dissolve clots. So when you're giving TPA, you're, you're giving extra doses of this to help your body help dissolve these blood clots. There are recombinant products available of TPA. Alteplase is one; that's the most commonly used one. But there are others: Releve and Tenecteplase are two other available recombinant forms. And I'll just comment that of the various uh, agents, I'll be talking about alteplase. That's by far the most commonly used. So when you give alteplase, you give it as an IV bolus with a one-hour infusion. Now, the half-life of this agent is about five to 10 minutes. In other words, after you give it, five to 10 minutes later, there's half as much in the body. Five to 10 minutes after that, there's half again. Five to 10 minutes later, half again. After the end of the infusion, about 50% of your agent is cleared within five minutes. Makes sense. About 80% cleared within 10 minutes. So you can see that, that this agent is cleared very quickly. Tonecteplase lasts a little bit longer. I'll just mention that one. It's 20 minutes, but it's certainly not hours. So what does TPA do when you get it? Fibrinogen degradation. So you are degrading fibrinogen, which is helping dissolve the clot. It's, it's using instead of, this is an atherosclerotic plaque, but over here here is a thrombus. And fibrinogen is critical to having blood clots. And what you're trying to do when you treat an ischemic stroke is degrade that fibrinogen. When you do that, you're creating these fibrinogen degradation products. But really over here is, is the mission that you're trying to accomplish when you give TPAs, fibrinolysis. So your patient came in with a stroke. You gave them TPA. So the half-life, as I pointed out, is so short that after minutes, some number of minutes, there's hardly any left. So does that mean that after you stop the infusion, the effect is gone? And, And here's the critical thing. TPA may be gone, but its impact is what's lasting longer. The effect of the TPA is lasting longer than the drug itself. If you look at fibrinogen levels, they drop out to six hours after TPA, 12 hours, 18 hours, even 24 hours later, the patient's not back up to their normal fibrinogen level. PTT, a partial thromboplastin time, got prolonged and it stays prolonged. INR, it's not up a lot, right? These are very subtle changes in your numbers. So you're not making these horrible coagulopathic changes out of 24 hours, but subtle changes are being seen. And what that just highlights is the impact lasts a long time. So if TPA-associated hemorrhage was just due to the the literal physical presence of the drug itself, it should really all be happening in the first five or 10 minutes, right? Or, Or even the first hour during the infusion. Because once you stop the infusion, it's gone. So all of our bleed should be happening here. But that's that's not what we see. What we see is people are bleeding hours in. And what I want to highlight is that people are bleeding out to 24 hours later, consistent with this idea that that when you give TPA the impact on the patient's coagulation system is lasting out to 24 hours. Most people, though, who have a TPA-associated hemorrhage are having it in the first 24 hours. 70% or 80% are having their hemorrhage within the first 24 hours. There are some who are suffering their symptomatic ICH even after 24 hours. I will highlight that there are some people who have symptomatic intracranial bleeding, even without TPA. Just just the stroke itself kills brain and dead brain has a risk of bleeding. So there's always that risk. You're raising that risk with TPA. And it's really this first 24 hours that is the worrisome. Coagulopathy. So who's going to get this symptomatic ICH? More severe coagulopathy is probably associated with higher risk of bleeding in the brain reduction in fibrinogen and increased fibrinogen degradation products associated with increased risk of SICH, hypofibrinogenemia associated with increased risk. So really, the coagulopathy, either before you gave TPA or if you check them after they got TPA, some people get more coagulopathic afterwards, and those are the people who are at higher risk. So when we treat TPA-associated hemorrhage, our goal of treatment is to treat this coagulopathy. Uh, Mentally, imagine that it's not that we're quote-unquote reversing TPA. It's that when you see a symptomatic ICH after TPA, you think this person has a coagulopathy here that we induced, and now we have to treat that. I mentioned this before. When does post-TPA symptomatic ICH occur? If you're going to develop it, it's mostly in the first 12 hours, frankly. Some people find it's going out to less than 10% uh, as 24 to 48 hours. Some studies up to 30%. But really the first 24 hours is the magic time. And of the first 24 hours, the first 12 hours is the most common. Now, when this happens, there are different kinds, and and there's a lot of different categorization systems. This is the ECAS criteria, and it just shows that you can have hemorrhagic infarcts, type one and two, and parenchymal hemorrhages. This patient here has had hemorrhagic infarct, in other words, ditzels of blood in the brain in this huge dark area is infarcted brain, and there's a little bit of blood in here. This person's got a little bit of blood that's probably not impacting their outcome because they're just bleeding a little bit into dead brain. So they're not worse off for this event this person has more blood in this whole infarcted area. Again, they're bleeding into dead brain and it's not actually affecting their brain or their recovery or their life. This person's got a parenchymal hemorrhage type one, you can debate whether this is impacting them. This person's had a parenchymal hemorrhage type two. And clearly this person is worse off. They're worse off for having received TPA or most likely worse off after receiving TPA. So this is clearly worse for the patient. And so when we face these, this is the kind that we fear. And our mission when we treat TPA-associated ICH is if you're going to have it, we want you to have this kind, not this kind. And if we find you with a small bleed, how do we prevent you from becoming a big bleed?
0: Now, for the podcast listeners who haven't also looked at Dr. Goldstein's slides that are available on the ASAP website, he is referring to pictures that demonstrate the Heidelberg classification of intracranial hemorrhage. And he specifically says that the PH2 classification, which is a hematoma that is greater than 30% of the infarcted area with significant space-occupying effect, or there's a clot removed from the infarcted area. And that's the one that he says is most likely to be worse for the patient after TPA. He actually just uses the photographs that are in an AHA commentary on the Heidelberg bleeding classification if you want to take a look at what they are. Well, one of the first questions, of course, is do people even have ongoing bleeding after symptomatic ICU?
1: In other words, if you have a patient with a stroke, you gave them TPA, and then they have a change in neurologic status, you rush them to the CAT scanner. You find out, oh my gosh, now they have bleeding. The question is, is the deal done, right? If the, if the event has occurred and is now over, there's nothing to treat. But if that means that this patient's gonna keep bleeding in front of you, whether you're in the ER or the stroke unit or the ICU, then, then you could say, wow, there's a window of opportunity if only I have the tools to take advantage of. So the answer is yes, up to 40% of patients with this can have further bleeding. So when you see it, you should worry that they're going to have ongoing bleeding. Conclusions from this section, the half-life of TPA is so short that you really can't specifically reverse it. However, the impact of TPA on the coagulation system, that can last 24 hours. And many people have ongoing bleeding after their TPA ICH diagnosis. Therefore, there is probably a window of opportunity to improve hemostasis and maybe minimize further bleeding. Now that we have that philosophical discussion, the the operational question for us clinical providers is, do we have any tools with which to do this? And even better, are there any clinical trials that study whether those tools actually help? All right, so the first question, whether to do anything at all. Are there some people who have TPA-associated ICH who could benefit from procoagulant treatment, some sort of a way of treating coagulopathy, but some who can't? And how would we know? how would we pick whether this is somebody who we should do something about or, or not? I'll start with nobody knows the right answer. So when you think about that, one question is, should we use risk of ongoing expansion? In other words, somebody who has a pre-existing coagulopathy, or you check their labs and you find they currently have a coagulopathy. Those are the highest risk people. So that's one way to ask who should, who should you target treatment to. Another one is opportunity to benefit. If you have a small hemorrhage, Some people might say you don't need to treat that. These people with little small amounts of blood in their brain are at low risk of ongoing bleeding. It's not clear that that's clinically relevant. And they're worried about thromboembolism. You're taking an ischemic stroke patient and giving a procoagulant. The flip side, though, the flip side is the argument do treat says, wow, this is somebody with a large opportunity to benefit. This is our chance to stop a small bleed from becoming a large bleed. And so maybe it's these small ICHs that we should be targeting. How about if a large hemorrhage, somebody's had some really catastrophic large hemorrhage after TPA? The argument to not treat would be the damage is done. Any opportunity to benefit this patient has passed it by by the time you've made this diagnosis. The argument to treat is the larger the hemorrhage, the higher risk of expansion. So the highest risk expanders are the ones that we should treat. And that preventing any further worsening is worth doing. I'll just say here, I'm raising these questions. I don't know the right answer and and nobody does, but these are the factors that sort of you can take into consideration when you've got the patient in front of you. The second question is, assuming you've decided, I want to treat this, how do you treat it? I'll start by saying there are no clinical trials or high quality, large, multi-center studies. This event is so rare that all we have are small, single-center observational studies. So the best guidance we have, sort of expert opinion-based scientific statement from the American Heart Association on treatment and outcome of hemorrhagic transformation after intravenous alteplase in acute ischemic stroke. The rest of my talk, I'll really use the recommendations from this scientific statement, acknowledging it's pure opinion-based. Here are some of our options for treatment. And I'll just start by walking through them. And then what I'm going to do is take each one and discuss that particular agent by itself. Cryoprecipitate, antifibrinolytics, aminocoproic acid, uh, amicar, or tranexamic acid, commonly called TXA, platelets, fresh frozen plasma, or FFP, prothrombin complex concentrate. I'll be using the term PCC in this talk. The most common brand name used in the United States, at least, is Kcentra, commonly called Beriplex in other countries. Various countries have different prothrombin complex concentrates available. For the purposes of this talk, uh, I'll just be considering them as a pool, just whatever prothrombin complex concentrate your hospital happens to have available. And last, factor 7A or recombinant activated factor 7, brand name is Novo 7. Let's start with cryoprecipitate. It's derived from fresh frozen plasma. Fresh frozen plasma contains a lot of your coagulation products from donors. Now, what this really contains a lot of is fibrinogen, plus some other components of the coagulation cascade. So, when you think about a TPA associated coagulopathy, one thing I highlighted before was that what TPA is doing is it's acting at fibrinogen. And that when people have low fibrinogen, that's a marker of who's going to bleed more. And so it's tempting to imagine that that we can replenish this. That when you gave TPA, you dropped fibrinogen levels. And so let's let's help replete fibrinogen. There's a couple different ways you can approach this. One is just administer 10 units of cryoprecipitate empirically. And what you're doing is you're presuming that they have a hypofibrinogenemia and you're treating that. Another option is if you can stat check a fibrinogen level in this patient. And if the fibrinogen is low, then provide cryoprecipitate. Your goal fibrinogen would be greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter. Normal is above two or 300, but nobody knows if there's some magic low number, but a lot of experts sort of feel like, you know, this would be a, the number that, that you start getting coagulopathic below. So, so this is absolutely one approach. As I said, all we have are observational studies. We don't have any high quality data. Risks of cryoprecipitate, it's you are transfusing somebody else's blood products. So the risks include a transfusion reaction. Of course, with almost all these agents, you should worry about a risk of thromboembolism. You know, you, you have somebody who got TPA to dissolve a blood clot and you're giving them a, something to help make clots. Antifibrinolytics, these inhibit plasmin. They prevent it from binding fibrin and dissolving it, so they're preventing plasmin from dissolving clots. So, since place acts by converting plasminogen to plasmin, increasing plasmin levels, antifibrinolytics are, are probably the most obvious anti TPA agent. The most common ones available are aminocoproic acid, and tranexamic acid. immunocoproic acid, dosing is unclear. Some places would use a, like a, just a 5-gram IV bolus. There's some who would argue for a 4-gram bolus and then 1-gram per hour for 8 hours, total larger amounts. Again, I don't think anybody knows the right answer. Tranexamic acid, a common dosing, is intravenous, 10 milligrams per kilogram, and major of the risk of that is, is thromboembolism. Uh, platelet transfusion. Now, thrombolysis may lead to platelet inhibition. So mostly these patients aren't missing platelets unless they were missing them before they ever got TPA. The question is, this patient has the right number of platelets. You don't necessarily need to check platelet levels after after you make this diagnosis. The worry is that you've inhibited those platelets. So some authorities recommend a platelet transfusion. What I would say on this one, if the patient has thrombocytopenia, then that's a great indication to give a platelet transfusion. If they don't have that, then just the question, and this is clinical decision-making, is there a platelet dysfunction suspected? If so, consider a platelet transfusion. Risks of this volume overload, especially if you give a lot of units. Again, a transfusion reaction, and again, thromboembolic events. Corthrombin complex concentrates. So these are typically concentrates of the vitamin K dependent coagulation factors. So you're giving them extra factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, protein C and S. When you're giving this, you're hoping to sort of activate these coagulation pathways, helping convert uh, fibrinogen to fibrin. And so you're helping to build a clot. It only works, of course, if you have fibrinogen in your body. So you could argue that if you're going to give this, you also need to replenish fibrinogen first. The strong indication for giving this agent is somebody who was on warfarin or Coumadin before you gave TPA. Now, this is a controversial area. There are some folks who will give TPA in the setting of Coumadin with a low INR. In that case, uh, this is a great choice. You can suspect there's an ongoing coagulopathy contributing to their uh, symptomatic hemorrhage. Otherwise, it's it's not clear what the right role for, for PCCs is for treating this. Major risk is thrombomolic events. Fresh frozen plasma. Again, this is plasma collected from donors. This contains all major components of the coagulation cascade. It does come in a large volume, and you can only give it so fast. Again, like with PCCs, for people who were on warfarin before, and you think they're missing coagulation factors, that's what warfarin does. Is it, it reduces your coagulation factors. This could be a, a way to replace replenish them risks, volume overload, and transfusion reaction. We're in activated factor 7a, brand name is Novo7. This is you're just giving somebody extra factor 7, and you're specifically giving them activated factor 7. So the hope is that you're activating the coagulation system, promoting hemostasis. Now, this agent has been shown to reduce hematoma expansion in patients with spontaneous ICH, not TPA-related ICH, but people who've had just spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. There are a couple big randomized controlled trials showing Novo7 decreases the risk of ongoing bleeding in the brain. It didn't change clinical outcome, unfortunately, so it's not used commonly for this purpose. But because of that, sometimes it is used off-label for multiple types of coagulopathy. And so as a result, some have advocated for its purpose for there is some risk of thromboembolism, of course, with this agent. So in conclusion, what are our options to treat coagulopathy? There's a lot out there, and I'll start with nobody knows the right answer. If we're just purely going on theory, the the agents with the most theoretical support for them are cryoprecipitate, fibrinogen is low or suspected to be low, and antifibrinolytics, such as aminocoproic acid or tranexamic acid. Next is supportive care. And just to not forget uh, that TPA-associated ICH, it's a hemorrhagic conversion of an ischemic stroke. And it's not just about the coagulopathy; it's about what's the right supportive care. Now, blood pressure lowering. There's some evidence from spontaneous ICH, not TPA associated ICH, but spontaneous ICH, that lowering the systolic less than one hundred and forty reduces the risk of ongoing bleeding in that disease. That said, it's very debatable whether that improves outcome. Even there, and that's that's non TPA associated ICH. Uh, but there's certainly a trend that reducing blood pressure may reduce the risk of hematoma expansion. We're not yet sure if that's clinically relevant, even in spontaneous ICH. It's certainly never been proven for TPA-associated ICH. But some have advocated for this, blood pressure reduction to reduce the risk of ongoing bleeding. Now, the concern, of course, specifically for this disease, is that these patients have had an ischemic stroke. They're early in their ischemic stroke. And so the risk of acutely lowering their blood pressure is that you'll hypoperfuse ischemic tissue. So I would say it's something to think about, but to be very, very careful and thoughtful about. Because even if they're bleeding after TPA, they still have had an ischemic stroke and you're still trying to, to help reperfuse those ischemic neurons. And that is still a priority. Anticoagulation reversal. For folks who are anticoagulated before symptomatic hemorrhage, really think about giving them a, a reversal agent for that anticoagulant. And for a variety of anticoagulants out there, not just warfarin but NOAAX, there are very specific reversal agents and you could consider that. Surgical hematoma evacuation, there's not much data for TPA-associated hemorrhage, surgical evacuation. Times to consider it would be cerebellar hemorrhage, where, where there's just not much room in your cerebellum, for a hemorrhage with mass effect, or for people with ongoing neurologic deterioration, deteriorating in front of you, um, that maybe there's a, a window of opportunity to just decrease this mass effect.
0: Do you see why I told you at the beginning of this that you might have to listen to this more than once? I can't even summarize all of the stuff that was in there because the summary would be as long as the original interview. I will link to the scientific statement that Dr. Goldstein referenced in the show notes. It's definitely worth taking a look at his slides that are available on the ASAP website, www.acep.com backslash equal. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of our ASEP Equal series at the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or at the ASAP website. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd.com. Thanks for your time today.